Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Buddy Holly and the Day the Music Died. Now let's continue with our story about Buddy Holly. Frustrated and angry, Buddy and Maria quickly set out for Clovis and a pointed discussion with Norman Petty. Petty tried to speak with Holly one-on-one, but neither Buddy or Maria would have any of that. The easy part was essentially firing Norman because there was no written management agreement in place. The passive-aggressive Petty responded with nonchalance, basically saying that if Buddy didn't want to work with him anymore, That was all right with him. The hard part would be extracting any money that Petty had pocketed on behalf of the band and unraveling the publishing rights to Buddy's hits that were enriching Petty's Norvijack company, especially with an uncooperative partner with no interest in integrity. Buddy's name wasn't even on Peggy Sue for reasons that may have been justified at the time, but now served to shut him out in perpetuity. The discussion quickly turned into a heated argument, with Petty refusing to cough up any immediate cash, citing the need for a full accounting to determine what Allison and Malden's share of the royalties were. The usually cool Petty probably overplayed his hand in true intent when he concluded the disagreement by yelling, quote, you'll starve to death before you see a penny of those royalties, unquote. Holly left Clovis not only angry with Petty, but baffled by the attitude of especially Jerry Allison, whose failure to stick together effectively gave Petty the ability to withhold money from all three of the band members. Allison maintained that he really didn't want to move to New York and would never fit in there, but probably Petty's admonition that once Buddy got control, Holly would make all of the decisions to the detriment of the other two probably rang true. Petty's promise to keep the crickets a viable entity, even in Holly's absence, was a short-term security blanket as opposed to the uncertainty of trying to continually make it in a much more competitive New York environment, especially if Buddy ever decided to go it alone. After a personal discussion in which Jerry Allison reiterated his desire to stick with Petty, a resigned Holly even agreed to let Allison and Malden use the cricket's name a gesture that also benefited Norman Petty. By late November, Buddy retained Harold Orenstein, an attorney who was an expert on music industry legal matters, and who was already battling the management of of the Everly brothers over similar issues. Orenstein's first gambit was a polite but firmly detailed letter to Petty formally rescinding any power of attorney and requesting all documentation and written contracts concerning Buddy Holly. Petty responded by predictably maintaining that his books and tax records were in the process of audit and preparation and were currently unavailable, but that they would eventually be forwarded, although specifics were not provided. With regard to royalties and performance receipts, Petty referred Orenstein to DECA and GAC, 
claiming that his agreements with Buddy were verbal and those two entities were the only source of that information. For the first time, Petty also dropped the bombshell that all checks I have received have been placed in an agency account. Upon advice from the Treasury Department and our accounting firm, he closed by assuring Orenstein that Buddy would be paid his share, quote, just as soon as the aforementioned audit is complete, unquote. Although Holly was stunned by the revelation that no separate royalty account even existed, he remained confident that Orenstein would eventually be able to force Petty to cough up at least some money. But life went on in Greenwich Village, and although Buddy and Maria enjoyed themselves in such a culturally abundant environment, the bills started to pile up. By Christmas 1958, Buddy was out of cash and actually borrowing from Aunt Provy to get by. It was this short-term situation that prompted a fateful call to GAC. He needed to go back to work on tour as quickly as possible. Luckily, or unluckily as it turned out to be, the agency had already scheduled a follow-up to its summer dance party of 1958. Richie Valens, the Big Bopper, Dion and the Belmonts, and newcomer Frankie Sardo were already scheduled for a winter dance party that would hit the smaller ballroom circuit of Midwestern Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Iowa for three weeks starting in the third week of January. Buddy jumped at the chance, even promising to provide his own backup band. Later, Maria claimed she was dead set against the tour, believing it was too small time, and beneath him, but Buddy was adamant. He didn't want to take any more loans from his aunt, of all people. He also tried to get his buddy, Eddie Cochran, of summertime blues fame, to join, but Cochran was scheduled to appear on The Ed Sullivan Show and begged off. The Hollies flew to Lubbock for the Christmas holidays, and it was there that he recruited his new backup band, Tommy Alsup, lead guitar he had worked with before, so that was easy. Alsup recommended Carl Bunch, a drummer similar in style to Jerry Allison. And Buddy convinced a Lubbock DJ and musician named Waylon Jennings to join as the bass player, despite Jennings having no bass experience. Buddy hung out a lot at the DJ station, WLLL, the most popular in Lubbock, and liked Jennings. He told Waylon he would buy him a bass and teach him everything he would need to know before the tour started. In mid-January, when the three band members got to New York, Alsop and Bunch checked into a hotel, but Waylon Jennings stayed with Buddy and Maria. Time was of the essence, and Buddy figured he needed as much time as possible to get Waylon up to speed. It was also during this time period that Maria informed Buddy that she was pregnant, news they kept even from Buddy's parents. The ongoing back and forth between Buddy's attorney and Norman Petty only provided discouragement. Petty was now actually trying to claim that Buddy was not now or had ever been a member of the Crickets, referring to various documents signed by other members only to avoid DECA's possible disqualification. Petty even understood that this was an utterly absurd claim, but also knew that with this type of maneuver, he could drag the royalty situation out indefinitely. Buddy was also dealing with the anxiety and health issues of his wife, who was insisting that she go on the tour but was having severe and daily bouts of nausea and discomfort. He convinced her that she needed to take it easy and that three weeks would pass by very quickly. Still, she began to have anxiety-filled nightmares right up until the day before Buddy left. At the last minute, she even tried one more time to convince him to let her go on the tour. Holly again told her to stay in New York and relax, that they needed the money. He would be home in a flash. 
With that, he left her and New York for the last time. At Grand Central Station, Buddy and his band boarded a train bound for Chicago. The ride should have given them an inkling of what to expect, Carl Bunch calling the excursion the worst train trip of his life. Bitter cold greeted them when they got to the Midwest. There they met and rehearsed with the other musicians on the tour, from Beaumont, Texas, J.P. Richardson, also known as the Big Bopper, known chiefly for his top 40 novelty hit of the previous September, Chantilly Lace. Richardson drew from his previous employment as a disc jockey, weaving comic dialogue into an irrepressible melody, while wearing a full-length dyed leopard-skin fur coat and white bucks, undoubtedly giving himself an interesting stage presence. From Silmar, California, in L.A.'s San Fernando Valley, came Richard Valenzuela, a.k.a. Richie Valens. No Hollywood screenwriter would have attempted to put over the story of Valens' overnight success at such a young age. When a well-connected L.A. music producer named Bob Keane got a tip that a precocious 16-year-old phenom was performing at a movie theater in the Valley, he decided to check out the youngster, performing as Richie Valenzuela. The teenager already had a following as the Little Richard of the Valley, and Keene signed him to a contract right away, promising to both help record and manage Richie's career. After rehearsing Richie in the basement studio of his Silver Lake home in June of 1958, Keene booked a session at Gold Star Studios to put together a single. From this emerged Richie's first song, Come On, Let's Go. Keene was involved in producing Sam Cooke's first hit, You Send Me, and although he was financially outmaneuvered by his then-business partner, Keene was an astute industry professional. He convinced Richie to change his professional name to Valens, explaining that DJs wouldn't play an obviously Latino artist on commercial pop radio. He then met with the music director of KFWB, a personal friend who made playlist decisions for the biggest radio station in Los Angeles. Keene's contact did not need much persuasion. Within days of Richie's first recording session, Come On, Let's Go was in the rotation at most Southern California radio stations. It gradually became a nationally popular song, and Keene, wanting to put together enough material to allow Richie to headline on tour, quickly rushed Valens back into the studio. Having spent time driving the singer to various local shows in SoCal, Keene had heard Richie singing a Mexican folk song to himself on acoustic guitar called La Bamba. Richie's manager was intent on doing something with the song, but Valens did not like the idea of exploiting a traditional Mexican folk tune in a rock and roll song. Instead, in a repetition of how Peggy Sue originated, Richie was intent on recording Donna, a song about a high school classmate. Donna Ludwig was an Anglo 16-year-old whose father would not have approved of even a 50s teenage romance with a Latino. She frequently took to climbing out of her bedroom window to meet Richie at a local soda fountain and roller rink. In the studio, Keen compromised. Richie would record both songs as A-sides, giving him two shots at a potential hit. By November, Donna was steadily rising up the charts. It would be at number three in early February of 1959. By the time Richie Valens hit Chicago, he had dropped out of high school, bought his mother a home, and was on the verge of banking over $100,000. Heady stuff for a 17-year-old whose extended family 
previously subsisted on picking asparagus and plums in the yet undeveloped farmlands north of Los Angeles. Rounding out the winter dance party was the New York-based doo-wop group Dion and the Belmonts. Both the band and Dion, still several years from industry prominence, and 22-year-old Frankie Sardo, another New Yorker and vocalist, mostly on board for eye candy. Although the first two shows on January 23rd and 24th in Milwaukee and Kenosha, Wisconsin, took place in a region currently plagued with bitter cold temperatures, the short distances between the two venues allowed the performers to spend only a limited time on their poorly heated bus. But the third stop in Mankato, Minnesota, was 380 miles away. Attempting to rest on individual seats was so uncomfortable that some of the band members actually tried sleeping in the overhead luggage racks. It was midday when the bus got to Mankato, only hours before that night's show. The January 26th show was slated for Eau Claire, Wisconsin, backtracking east mostly across the state of Minnesota for 170 miles in zero-degree temperatures. The Big Bopper already had the flu, a condition that did not improve, after the entourage finished up in Eau Claire and got back on the bus to begin another stretch west, 240 miles back across the state of Minnesota, to the smallest town on the tour, Montevideo, population 5,600. When they got there, GAC tour manager Sam Geller began making arrangements to charter another bus to get the bands to the next stop in St. Paul. Geller could sense that the transportation they were using was on the verge of collapse, and the vehicle was unable to provide consistent levels of heat, especially at night. A local Montevideo charter bus company got everyone 155 miles to St. Paul, a relatively easy leg of the tour. Like all of the shows on the circuit, local radio promoted the event, which led to mostly sold-out venues. And even as in the case of St. Paul, a crowd that was over capacity. Typically, the shows ended with Holly the headliner performing last and concluding at about 10.30 p.m. The tour stayed in the Twin Cities overnight and then got on a new bus the next morning. Next stop, Davenport, Iowa, 320 miles to the south. Despite temperatures that moderated up to the low 30s, conditions on the bus were still uncomfortable, with heat sporadic. By now, Richie Valens was sick with the flu. As well as the following day, on the way to the next show, the bus's heater shut down completely. There was a delay while mechanics took a look in the tiny town of Tipton, Iowa, and determined that the heaters themselves were completely frozen. It took several hours to literally defrost the bus heaters, causing the tour to get to Fort Dodge only minutes before the show. Although the entourage had experienced a grueling tour, they did not know that the worst was yet to come. They stayed overnight in Fort Dodge, hoping that the temperatures would moderate as they headed to their next show in Duluth, Minnesota, 360 miles away. The night before, Buddy Holly called his wife, complaining about both the cold and the terrible transportation. She urged him to come home, but he was having none of it, explaining that he couldn't pass up the money. Instead, he got on the bus for the plodding ride to the northernmost spot on the tour yet, Duluth, with overnight temperatures predicted to hit 30 below. At least during the show, Sam Geller was able to store the bus in the heated basement of the venue, the Duluth National Guard Armory. The lack of realistic foresight of the tour's promoters was underlined in what was scheduled for the next day, Sunday, February 1st. Not one but two shows were on tap, a matinee in Appleton, Wisconsin, 
and an evening show in Green Bay. Appleton was 320 miles away, and the afternoon start time meant that the bus would have to leave Duluth immediately after the show and travel through the night. The vehicle got about 120 miles down the road before it broke down entirely, about 10 miles south of the town of Hurley, Minnesota, on the Minnesota-Michigan border. So late at night, there were no cars on the two-lane highway, and snow was piled waist-deep on the side of the road. As the bus got increasingly colder, Sam Geller was finally able to flag down a passing vehicle, who luckily turned out to be a sheriff's deputy. Between the deputy and the few other vehicles that passed by, the tour members were transported to the relative safety of the town of Hurley. Buddy Holly was able to get a hotel room just over the border in Ironwood, Michigan. Most of the others wound up in an all-night cafe in Hurley. A wrecker got the bus to a garage where it was determined that a cracked piston made it irreparably damaged. Making the Appleton show was impossible. It was canceled, but the group took either a Greyhound bus or a train and reassembled Sunday afternoon in a Green Bay hotel lobby. Only Carl Bunch was left behind, his feet too severely frostbitten for him to even walk, much less play the drums. One of the Belmonts filled in on the drums, and when his act performed, Richie Valens backed them up. 2,000 fans crowded into Green Bay's Riverside Ballroom, a completely packed house that energized musicians who had barely slept. Geller had ordered a new bus delivered from Chicago for yet another insanely planned stretch of the tour, this time 340 miles west to Clear Lake, Iowa. By now, the musicians were facing another logistical nightmare, laundry. Their schedule precluded any opportunity to either send out their dirty clothes or stop and clean them themselves. They frequently changed out of whatever sweaty costumes they were wearing and put on street clothes for the bus ride. But between the diesel fuel and the lack of cleanliness, the bus was not only uncomfortably cold, it now had an unpleasant odor. Buddy Holly's desperation heightened when halfway to Clear Lake, the supposedly new and reliable bus's heaters began to fail. At a rest stop, Buddy Holly talked to his attorney by phone, angered by the revelation that even threats of a lawsuit hadn't budged Norman Petty. With a suitcase filled with dirty laundry, a 6 p.m. arrival time in Clear Lake well after the only laundromat closed, and staring down the barrel of another 440-mile ride north to the next day's gig in Moorhead, Minnesota, Buddy Holly was resolved to implement an idea he had discussed earlier in the tour. He would charter an airplane as soon as he got to Clear Lake and fly to Fargo, North Dakota, just over the border from Moorhead. He was talked out of an earlier attempt to do this in Fort Dodge to avoid the long ride to Duluth. The local promoter and the owner of a local charter service telling him that flying at night in such weather was too dangerous. But now he hoped to find someone with a different perspective. After the equipment was offloaded, Buddy collared the surf ballroom's manager, Carol Anderson, and asked him about chartering a plane. Anderson knew of an associate named Jerry Dwyer, who operated a flying service out of a small regional airport in nearby Mason City. Dwyer was out at a Chamber of Commerce meeting, but Anderson was able to get a hold of a pilot who worked for Dwyer, 21-year-old Roger Peterson, who immediately agreed to fly the charter. During an intermission before Dion and the Belmonts and Buddy Holly finished the show, Word began to spread among the musicians that Buddy was going to fly. Initially, there were two seats on board, and Holly figured that he would offer them to his two band members, Jennings and Alsup. 
But once the big bopper found out about the charter, he approached Jennings and asked if he could take his spot, as long as Buddy said it was okay. Waylon Jennings knew that J.P. Richardson was quite sick, and he was also a headliner, so he agreed to give up his seat. When Holly heard that Jennings had bailed on the flight, he figured Jennings was just too scared to fly. Laughing at his bass guitarist, he said, I hope your bus freezes up. Jennings responded without thinking, I hope your plane crashes, a comment he would both keep private and feel guilty about for many subsequent years. Richie Valens also had the flu at this point, sick enough to approach Tommy Alsup about taking his seat on the plane. Valens was also a headliner, but he was only 17, considered practically a child compared to the worldly musicians in Buddy's band. He also had an ingrained fear of airplanes. Years earlier, a mid-air airplane collision raining debris over the playground at his Pacoima High School had actually killed a few of his classmates and injured many others. Richie was not at school that day, attending the funeral of a relative, and considered it an omen that he had been spared. Nevertheless, his illness and reluctance to spend all night freezing on the bus was a powerful factor in trying to get the last seat on the charter. Initially, before his set, Alsop refused, but after the show, Buddy Holly asked him to go back out on stage to make sure they hadn't left anything behind. Valens asked him again, this time suggesting that they flip a coin. Alsop took a half dollar out of his pocket, told Valens to call it, and the 17-year-old successfully picked heads. Only minutes later, he was getting into Carol Anderson's station wagon with the big bopper, Buddy Holly, and Anderson's wife and son. Buddy Holly called his wife from the surf ballroom to tell her he was making arrangements to reach their next show before the rest of the band, but he did not tell her that he would fly. He also did not tell tour manager Sam Geller, possibly concerned that Geller would try to intercede and stop the flight. Geller later insisting that that was exactly what he would have done. Jerry Allison and Joe Malden had already called the motel in Moorhead, Minnesota to leave a message for Buddy to call them when he got there. They already were ready to fire Norman Petty and reunite the original crickets. Although only 21, Roger Peterson had five years of flying experience and had flown charters for Jerry Dwyer throughout the Midwest. Although it was in the high teens, visibility was good and a cold front was not expected until 3 a.m., long after the plane's 12.30 a.m. departure time. Carol Anderson arrived with the three passengers at 12.40, and each passenger paid $36 in cash for the flight. The group made some small talk and looked at a map with their route on it. Then it was time to take off, Peterson having already warmed up the plane a Beechcraft Bonanza. Richardson and Valens got into the two back seats, and Buddy Holly got into the front right seat but had to get out to let Peterson into the cockpit. He then re-entered and shut the airplane door. Dwyer and Anderson then watched as the plane sat on the runway for a few minutes and then proceeded forward, taking off normally, Peterson shutting off the landing lights as he gained altitude. Dwyer then watched as the plane seemed to be proceeding properly, the white tail light of the plane visible in the distance. As the plane got further away, Dwyer noticed that the taillights seemed to be descending in relationship to the red lights in towers on the north edge of the airfield until the taillight eventually disappeared entirely. Dwyer chalked it up to an optical illusion and for the moment remained unconcerned. Only a few miles away from the airport, several local residents heard an airplane flying at a level that seemed unusually low. 
but sound of the plane dissipated, and they thought nothing else about it at the time. Coincidentally, Jerry Dwyer was trying to raise Peterson on his office two-way radio to make sure the flight was proceeding smoothly. He did not get a response, and Dwyer then attempted to contact several airports along the flight path to see if they had heard from the pilot, and when they responded negatively, he went home, figuring he would call the Fargo airport from his house. By 3.30 a.m., Fargo responded that not only had the flight not arrived, but they had heard nothing from Peterson at any time during the scheduled flight. By 5 a.m., the distraught Dwyer formally contacted the FAA in Minneapolis and asked them to issue a regional Air Force search and rescue alert. Roger Peterson was supposed to return home so that his wife, Deanne, could go to work at a local TV station. At 6.30, she got a ride from a friend and drove out to the airport, the family car still where Peterson had left it before the flight. She had told him not to fly on such a cold night and was practically unsurprised that something had clearly gone wrong, having had a premonition that the flight was a bad idea. By 9.15 a.m., having heard nothing, Jerry Dwyer was also getting antsy, just waiting around to hear something, when he decided to take another one of his planes up along the route that Peterson would have taken. Only eight miles northwest of the airport, he spotted what was clearly the wreckage of an airplane in a field. He radioed the control tower at Mason City and told them to get police and ambulances in his direction. He added that he would circle the spot until they arrived. None of the nearby farmers noticed anything unusual until Cerro Gordo County Sheriff's deputies pulled up to the farm of Albert Jewell, who opened the gate to his property and watched as the two policemen rapidly headed west, quickly able to see the wreckage of the plane in the distance. Lodged where it came to a stop against a barbed wire fence separating the Jewell farm from some adjoining properties. As they pulled up to the scene, the body of the pilot was visible in the wreckage, and what was eventually identified as the bodies of Valens and Buddy Holly were within 20 feet of the plane's remains. J.P. Richardson was hurled from the crash over the barbed wire fence, lying 40 feet away as small amounts of snow were swirled around the bodies and the wreckage. Three Iowa Highway patrolmen quickly also arrived, as well as some ambulances. There was still some confusion as to how the news eventually was disseminated. Bob Rule, a local DJ who had emceed the show, claimed to have gotten a call from Carol Anderson telling him that the three rock stars, Holly, Valens, and Richardson, were dead. He interrupted a record and announced the tragedy, put on a Buddy Holly song, and then called UPI. For the rest of the day, he fielded calls from all over the country. The UPI wire service story was picked up by media across the U.S. and immediately transmitted over the air. All of the victims' families found out either from radio or television reports, and others, like the family of Waylon Jennings, were not sure if he was alive or dead. There was further confusion when Tommy Alsup's wallet was also found in the wreckage. Later it would turn out that at the last minute, after he lost the coin toss, Alsup gave Holly his wallet to retrieve a registered letter sent by Alsup's mother, to a Fargo post office. One major contingent that was completely unaware of the tragedy was the busload of winter dance party performers who pulled into Moorhead, Minnesota at about noon on February 3rd. Surprisingly, the ride hadn't been that bad, Tommy Alsup using a sleeping bag that the Big Bopper purchased a few days earlier. 
Geller and Alsup were the first two individuals into the hotel lobby. The rest stayed on the bus sleeping until they got checked in. Geller presumed that Holly, Richardson, and Valens were already at the hotel, and he asked the desk clerk about them before he did anything else. The stunned clerk, aware of the crash, just pointed to a nearby television that had a photo of Richie Valens on a local news report. Alsup and Geller watched in disbelief, and then the tour manager headed out to the bus to break the news to the rest of the performers. Before he did anything, Geller then got everyone checked in and called Irvin Feld. Incredibly, he was told not to cancel any shows. Feld then got both Tommy Alsup and Waylon Jennings on the phone and laid the whole the show must go on adage on them and promised to pay them Buddy's salary for the remainder of the tour. After calling his own family back in Texas, Tommy Alsup spoke to Buddy's parents, who encouraged him to stay on the tour. Dion and the Belmonts, who were a long way from home, also agreed that they didn't have much of a choice. In the meantime, GAC was frantically attempting to plug in some other acts to replace the dead musicians. The local promoter, Rod Lussier, initially put out word that the show was canceled, but backtracked when GAC insisted that it would take place. All of the replacement musicians were pointing towards joining the tour the next day in Sioux City. Lucier was so desperate he agreed to put on a group of teenagers led by 15-year-old local Robert Valine, who unbeknownst to him had never performed in front of an audience and came up with their name, The Shadows, only minutes before they took the stage. After Frankie Sardo gave an uninspired set, the Shadows came on with covers of the Everly Brothers, Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis. Robert Valine was so impressive that within a year he was performing nationally as Bobby V. His Take Good Care of My Baby, a number one hit in 1961. To replace Buddy Holly, a trio consisting of Tommy Alsup, Waylon Jennings, and Belmont Carlo Mastrangelo were introduced as Buddy Holly's crickets, Jennings handling vocals. A completely packed house at the Moorhead Armory were both supportive and responsive. By February 4th, the GAC replacement performers Frankie Avalon and Jimmy Clanton joined the winter dance party. Carl Bunch had been released from the hospital and was also ready to rejoin his former bandmates, as well as a West Texas rockabilly singer to replace Holly named Ronnie Smith. Unfortunately, the Sioux City show was a disaster. The band had no emotional shape to perform, and the crowd even more depressed. Back in Mason City, Buddy Holly's brother arrived to pick up Buddy's body and take it back for burial in Lubbock. Visiting the crash site before the plane wreckage was hauled off to a hangar at the airport. Richardson's body was flown to Beaumont. Valens was put on a train to Southern California. By the weekend, funerals were conducted for all four of the deceased, family members and fans still in a state of shock. Amazingly, the Winter Dance Party successfully completed every scheduled show subsequent to the death of its three biggest stars, its final show was on February 15th in Springfield, Illinois. One final bus trip was required to get back to Chicago, and there the tour split up. The new crickets, Jennings, Alsup, Bunch, and Smith, were summoned to New York, where they believed they were soon to be booked for a tour of Great Britain. When they got there, they were told that Jerry Allison and Norman Petty actually had rights to the crickets' name, and there would be no British tour. 
Other than reimbursement for their railroad tickets to New York, they did not receive a dime of the promised pay increase following Holly's death. The winter dance party was such a financial flop that Irvin Feld got out of the rock music tour business entirely. Instead, he went on to promote and then own Ringling Brothers Barnum & Bailey's Circus, as well as other entertainment ventures. Although Feld died in 1984, his family-run entity, Feld Entertainment, evolved into a billion-dollar enterprise. Waylon Jennings went back to his job as a DJ in Lubbock. It would take him 15 years and many twists and turns before he became one of the biggest stars in country music with fellow outlaws Willie Nelson and Chris Christopherson. For many years, Jennings kept the story of his last words to Buddy Holly private especially guilty because of how well the singer had treated him. Although the three entertainers who were killed in the plane crash did not have a will, their estate situations were clear-cut. Holly and Richardson were married, so their estates went to their wives. Valens was a minor, so his estate went to his mother. Unfortunately, it was the contents of the estates that remained contentious for many years. An immediate lawsuit against Jerry Dwyer was settled out of court in September of 1959, with each estate receiving somewhere between twenty-five dollars and $50,000 from Dwyer's insurance company, mostly because Iowa state law limited any single legal liability claim to $50,000. Dwyer would continue to run his air charter concern for several decades, eventually buying back the wreckage of the plane from the CAB and making cryptic comments about the real truth of the crash, having never been told. He refused all interviews, claiming that he eventually would write a book setting the record straight. He never did, dying in 2016. A subsequent 1959 Civil Aeronautics Board inquiry designated the cause of the crash as pilot error and even taking off into unpredicted weather that probably involved what today is known as wind shear and the pilot's inability to properly use instruments once his plane was beset with poor visibility due to an unexpected snow squall. Predictably, especially locally in the Mason City area, conspiracy theories abounded after a gun eventually traced to Holly was found when the jewel cornfield thawed in the spring, especially when one bullet was missing from the weapon. Whether the jewels fired the weapon themselves or did not is still a matter of dispute. But Buddy always carried a gun on the tour, considering the amount of cash he had on him, and Peterson's extensive autopsy showed no evidence of any kind of gunshot wound. Instead, his death was caused immediately by traumatic blunt force. In 2007, the son of J.P. Richardson, troubled by the idea that his father might have survived the crash and had walked or crawled from the wreckage, had his father's body exhumed. Another autopsy was performed by a forensic anthropologist who reaffirmed that the Big Bopper suffered massive bone fractures from head to toe, was killed on impact, his skull severely damaged, and death immediate. Initially, Buddy Holly's widow, Maria, was overwhelmed by his death. Although she traveled to Lubbock at the time of Buddy's funeral, she did not attend the actual church service and burial and has never visited his grave. She allegedly miscarried only days after the plane crash, although it is notable that, at the time, information about both her pregnancy and miscarriage was never shared with anyone else, including the Holly family. Initially, she wanted nothing to do with any of Buddy's possessions. She remarried to a Puerto Rican government official and had three children. 
Eventually divorced, she moved to Texas and began to assert her legal rights over inherited interests, including Buddy Holly's likeness and other intellectual properties. She also began to sue the Holly family over the exhibition of clothing and musical instruments, especially the Fender Stratocaster used on the Winter Dance Party Tour. A memoir released by Peggy Sue Guerin also incurred her legal wrath with an attempt to stop the book's publication, especially because Peggy Sue alleged that had he lived, Buddy Holly would have quickly divorced Maria, and he supposedly told Peggy Sue that she was the love of his life, and if she divorced Jerry Allison, he would marry her. Peggy Sue did eventually get divorced, moved to California, and married a plumber. She passed away in 2018, age 78. Maria Elena Holly still lives in Texas, aggressively supervising all aspects of Buddy Holly's estate. She is not shy about profiting whenever possible from any item connected to Holly or his legacy. Twenty years after the crash, when the Cerro Gordo Sheriff's Department returned Buddy Holly's eyeglass frames recovered from the crash site and mistakenly forgotten in a file cabinet, she eventually sold them for $80,000 to the Buddy Holly Center Museum in Lubbock, Texas. She did, however, also agree to split any proceeds from the estate with Buddy Holly's family. As of 2022, she is still living in Texas, aged 89. Buddy Holly's estate and other songwriters like Jerry Allison and Nicky Sullivan benefited greatly when, in 1976, Paul McCartney purchased the publishing rights to the Holly catalog from Norman Petty. Petty's musical influence was greatly diminished by that point, as he had burned many bridges and his reputation scared off any serious musicians from getting involved with him. McCartney's music publishing entity, MPL Communications was much more scrupulous in paying regular royalties to all of the artists involved in the composition of Holly's music. Norman Petty's sale of the catalog was necessitated by lavish spending and investments gone bad, including a new larger recording studio, a diamond store, and radio stations. He did record the number one hit in 1963 with Jimmy Gilmer and the Fireballs, Sugar Shack. But over 21 years later, on August 15, 1984, he died from leukemia in a hospital in Lubbock, Texas, age 57, the world of rock and roll having long since passed him by. Buddy Holly's high profile in the music business lasted for about two years, and Richie Valens and the Big Bopper lasted for less than a year. The advent of American male vocalists like Frankie Avalon, Paul Anka, Fabian, and similar performers sent rock music into another direction, and within a few years, Holly, Valens, and the Big Bopper faded into relative musical obscurity. That suddenly changed in 1971 with the release of Don McLean's monumental song, American Pie. The words dedicated to Buddy Holly prominently featured on the cover of the remarkably popular album of the same name. For teenagers too young to have heard of Holly while he was alive, a new generation was introduced to his music and the story of his tragic death at age 22. It is at least comforting to note that despite all of the greed and duplicity that marked Buddy Holly's career and precipitated the events that led to his death, the site of the crash is now a makeshift shrine and pilgrimage site, despite the fact that it is situated on private property. Alfred Jewell sold his land in the early 60s to another local family, the Nicholases. Over time, they have erected a simple memorial to the musicians, 
as well as Roger Peterson on the exact spot along the fence line where the plane came to a halt. To guide those interested in finding the spot, they have erected a sculpture on the highway resembling Buddy's horn-rimmed glasses, marking the path that leads to the site. Every year, they purposely do not plant corn or soybeans on the path or in the vicinity of the markers, encouraging visitors to access this remarkable spot at no charge. And from the very first days after the crash, locals have noticed that people do come to the site, first just a trickle from the region, but today, over 60 years later, by the thousands from all over the world, perhaps motivated by a feeling expressed by McLean in his epic song. I can't remember if I cried when I read about his widowed bride, but something touched me deep inside the day the music died. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Buddy Holly. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Rave On by Philip Norman, Hey Buddy by Gary Moore, and The Day the Music Died by Larry Lemer. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People. And follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes. And if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Mm-hmm.